Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, we frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you love. And today's guest is gonna to contribute to our understanding of optimization of performance. He is the head of performance of the Tampa Bay Lightning, the professional hockey team here in Tampa, Florida, in the National Hockey League. Mark Lambert joins me today to talk about all of the unique and intricate dynamics at play when dealing with pro athletes and the dynamics amongst all of the team. Mark takes a really unique approach to training his clients, training his athletes, and in understanding how to treat each athlete differently. Obviously, in a pro team with such special considerations, around how often they're training when they're playing an 82-game schedule, the amount of training would actually surprise you. It's actually quite low. And Mark spends most of his time, in fact, managing their stress, managing their recovery, making sure they're able to perform at 100% every night rather than optimizing the training and performance. It's a really unique discussion around all those other things that go into how do I get this guy or person to show up at 100% of their potential every single night. And you guys know my fascination with not just what goes on inside the gym, but what goes on outside of the gym to optimize your performance, your cognitive performance, your emotional resilience, so that when you step into the arena, you're at your absolute peak. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Mark Lambert. I know you will too. This episode of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast is brought to you by Four Sigmatic, my favorite mushrooms in the world. They're now expanding their line into beauty products and adaptogens and everything to allow you to thrive. If you're not someone who has forayed into the mushroom world yet, I strongly suggest you do. There's at least a core number of mushrooms that I know work extremely well while they research endless numbers of mushrooms and the potential implications. So mushrooms being a naturally occurring substance uh, has offered people healing for centuries, if not millennia. And now we're starting to quantify the value of these things. So it's not just, hey, I'm going to eat this and maybe it does something for me. We can actually see the fact that lion's mane increases BDNF in the brain. We can actually see that reishi decreases central nervous system stress. It also seems to be a really good boost for the immune system, does reishi. So again, those are the ones I talk about all the time, but there's a massive list, right? So there's turkey tail, there's cordyceps, there's chaga. There's so many things that have all these different benefits. I just happen to be partial to these few. But if you're someone who's looking to improve your performance, whether it be aerobically or anaerobically, chaga has been suggested to improve endurance and the body's resiliency to long exercise. Cordyceps has been shown to improve testosterone in, in men. It's also been shown to be an adaptogen. So if you're stressed, it brings you down. It calms you down. If you're a little bit tired, it brings you up. Um, so that's a huge benefit of these adaptogenic mushrooms that exist. And, you know, Four Sigmatic has been a longtime sponsor of the show. And we're so grateful to have them as part of our show, as part of my life. And I share them with you and hope you enjoy them as well. You can check that out at foursigmatic.com. And the discount code is MUSCLE. If you go to the URL, for sigmatic.com slash muscle and take you right there automatically apply a 15% discount to everything in your order today and hope you can share this with at least one person that you know will love the show and love for sigmatic have a great day guys enjoy the podcast with mark lambert so in 96 i got my first personal client and since 96, all the way to 2011, I've always had that. So basically people knock on the door, people call me, people call us, I should say. 
and then we train them. But if you call me or if you walk through that door, kind of like you, well, that person already has a trust in you. Sure. You know, his age, whatever you told say him, they do, call that guy, yeah. his friend, call that guy. That's easy. Buy-in, right? The buy-in, the buy-in, it's not even a question. Right. The buy-in is already there in most cases. So whenever you walk into a team setting, first of all, you're replacing someone. And that's a big thing because you're replacing, for example, I was with the team this morning. It's all joking around. It's a locker room. You know, we have fun. So I replaced that person who they used to have fun with. So right away, who is this new guy? Right. Which is understandable. Which right. is totally understandable. So right off the bat, who are you? Where's my friend? Like, where's my buddy? Well, hopefully I'm going to be eventually, right. but my buddy's gone. So right away, I don't trust you. First of all, I don't know who you are in the most part. Second of all, you replace my buddy. And then you have the hierarchy of players. You have the 35-year-old who's been there forever. He's been playing for whatever, 15 years mm -hmm. in the league. You have the 30-year-old who is never really trained. You have the 25-year-old who's in the prime, in his prime physical condition. And you have the 19-year-old who's never touched a weight in his life. Raw. And yeah, who's raw, who will do anything you want because he's just a kid. He just wants to be on the team. Right. right? So that's easier. That part's easier. But then you have the 25-year-old who, and all these guys have their own strength coaches in the summertime, right? So they trust them, which is understandable too. And here I am. And if I don't have the same mentality, so if you train with Ben Prentice, that's easy. Me and Ben have the same mentality. If you train with Andre Benoit, like we were talking about earlier, that's easy. We have the same mentality-ish. So that's easy and we speak the same language. But if you train with someone else who doesn't speak the same language, then right away, well, you don't have that buy-in right away. So what I'm getting at, it's all in the basically relationships you can create. Of course. Those players. Yeah, if you don't course. have that relationship, you're yeah. done. And the previous coach or trainer would have created expectations. Like, hey, here's what I expect you to be. This is the standard we need to keep. And yours is probably going to be different or maybe in a different direction. And exactly. you standardize different things or, or you prioritize different things. And yeah. maybe they don't see the value in that. So you have to then take the time to you know, create the buy-in. Well, exactly. You said expectations. That's a key word because when I, I remember my in 2011, I had my interview here in Tampa. So I had to fly from Montreal here and then back to Montreal that same day. But during my interview, my two bosses, Steve Eisman, who was no longer my boss, and Julian Breezebaugh, I said, look, should you get this job, your mandate is to change the culture. Culture. One guy. And I'm not a coach. I have a coach in my title, but I'm not a coach per se. I don't have any jurisdiction. I can't bench a player. I mean, that's not the way it works. I can only suggest a few things, basically. And that's they do it or they don't. Usually they do, but either reluctantly or with heart. Obviously, if they do it with heart, you have that intensity, right? Which is what you want. But in terms of changing the culture, I realized that those relationships weren't there right in the beginning. And a lot of players didn't trust me, obviously, which is totally understandable. So one of the things we had to do was just set expectations. And especially because of the way the NHL is set up, I'm not allowed to give you a program. Here, this is what you're doing this summer. I'm not allowed. It's just against the rules. Right. Like, we're not allowed to do that. But if I create expectations in September, these are our standards. These are our expectations. Well, it's easier because, well, this is what I need to do. So I'll, I'm going to go home, tell my strength coach, look, my own personal strength coach, oh, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to achieve. And personally, I don't care how you get there as long as you get there. Sure. You know, as long as so you that's how you're setting it now. You give them expectations. When you come to the season, you have to be able to do, you know, this many pull-ups, this much squat, this body fat, things like that. What are the metrics? What are you exactly. measuring? So basically we do body fat. I use a uh, tenfold body fat. Now for the body composition, 
when we say body fat, it's more body composition. Sure. It's not just body fat. Who cares about the actual number of body fat as long as it's not too high or too low? You know, but we look at lean mass and we look at the weight, we look at the lean mass and we look at the percentage, obviously. But we look at the evolution over time and we look at, okay, this is what you were when you felt great, when you had a great season, when your speed was as fast as it could be. So this seems like a good percentage to be right. around because we cut it off at 14. After 14%, this is where we have a conversation. doesn't mean you're going to be benched. You're not. But we have a conversation. So if it's 19, 20, 23, which I've seen before, well, then the GM will actually talk to you but and the coach. But it's just a conversation. It's a conversation where how can I help you? If 16 is where you play best hockey, then 16 is where you want to be. It doesn't matter to me, but right. the cutoff, like the metric is 14. Then we look at bench press. So for upper body strength, we have a close grip bench press and a supinated chin up, which in testing we do for three reps, as heavy as you can for three reps at a three zero one zero tempo. I just want to know how strong you are and to see your evolution over time. And we have a front squat, which is the same. But the most important tests, I would say, was the vertical jump. Because theoretically, the higher you jump, the faster you skate. And we're all about speed. The NHL is all about speed nowadays. Is that a one-to-one correlation in your experience? Like, have you ever had guys who are not good jumpers who are fast? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But in 90% of cases, right. the higher you jump, the more explosive you are. You and I talked about this last time, was you have guys who are maybe not fast, but super quick because they're always in the right position. So their ability to get places seems like it's faster. But if you put them in a straight line, they're not going fast. Exactly. That's a different, completely different skill set. It's completely right? different skill set. Yeah. yeah. And then we also test the Wingate test. Right. Over 30 seconds. That's the fun one. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, we have that here and we, we like to put people through that. Just... You know, kind of the man maker, right? Or the widow maker, oh, yeah. I guess. Oh, yeah. One thing I'd like to do is kind of let the audience peer into the life of pro sports team, dressing room, performance team. So, so what type of people do you have on your team that these guys have access to? So you have a therapist, you have a massage guy, you have a strength coach. What are the kind of like access levels that you have here? Like who do you have on the team? Okay. So aside from the coaching staff, if we're talking about the, the actual training, sports staff. So let's see the performance aspect. So not on the ice, off the ice. Correct. So off the ice, obviously we have equipment managers with three of those. We have two athletic therapists. What do they do? First of all, they're the ones who are on the bench Got during it. the games. So like taping sticks, like. No, those are the equipment managers. Yeah. But taping angles or taping wrists right. and day-to-day tune-ups basically that's what they handled so what would their background be like physical therapy or athletic therapy or they're both athletic therapists and i think both of them may be pts actually yeah. so uh, physical therapists then we have a manual therapist who's absolutely phenomenal that's he's, christian that's christian rivas yeah, yeah. No, he's great him and i are two peas in a pod because we actually work together like okay this guy Come and watch him do a chin-up. Look at his uh, scapula on the right side. Right. Go fix him. Right. Go fix him. Then send him back. And then he comes back and he's fine. Well, he's better. So that's how we work. We're kind of like a team that way. Uh, so that's Christian. He's a manual therapist. And then we have Brandon Rogers, who's my assistant. But he's actually everybody's assistant. So he's a PT. And he's also a manual therapist. And he's also a strength coach. So he's, <laughs> he's busy. He's got a good skill set. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he's new from last year. So that's the extent of the team. That's it. Interesting. So like from my perspective, I'd be like, well your role needs to be discussed more, but like, I'm like, I want someone to teach these guys breathing. I want someone to teach these guys meditation. I want someone to teach these guys speed. Like I know they do that on the ice, but is that kind of what you're looking at? Yeah. So my role, I'm a head strength coach, but I'm also a performance director. Yeah. So we also have a mental health professional. Yeah. Now is that an athlete, like a previous athlete? Or that's just like a sports psych guy. 
he's a sports psych. But he's he is an athlete in the sense he's never played professional sports. Right. But he's very athletic. He gets it. Okay. That's what I mean. And he works with Team Canada. He works with all kinds of sports teams. So he, so he gets it. He's not just an office setting person. So you and I have been talking a lot about heart rate variability. Right. We've been talking about a lot of about breathing. And part of what I do, being a strength coach in season, I encourage everybody to look at an NHL team's schedule. That's nuts. It's crazy. Travel and, all over the uh, place. At least they fixed it where you used to go coast to coast. Now you're like, you got a West Coast trip. You know, you stay on the coast, right? Going exactly, back and forth. Exactly. Oh, it used to be tough. I mean, I wasn't there in those days, but right. it used to be crazy. So we don't train very often. Like we have a six-month schedule, but if I can get 24 team workouts in there, I'm happy. 24, that's not even one a week. Right. You know, right after Christmas, this upcoming season, we have 13 games in 21 days. That's crazy. I don't even, we're probably not going to train once in there. So what we do after games is the breathing. That's where I'm going to implement breathing with some players. And it's funny because you asked me this once, how do you get the buy-in from everybody? Obviously, that's impossible. And when I got here in 2011, I thought, okay, this is what I know. We're going to do it all at once. That backfired pretty quickly because it's too much. It's too much of a change for everybody. So the way I do it right now is I take one person and I bring him and we do something and he leaves. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Most of the time he comes back. We'll do it another time. Feels better. You know, the first time around isn't always the best. So sure. And then after repetition, it's better. And especially for the breathing, I started that this week with one of our players and everybody looks through the window of the office. What were you doing? What were you doing in there? So the next time around, there's two guys. Next time around, there's four guys or three guys or five guys. You know, so that's a big helper for. So then they've made the decision to go rather than you insisting that they well, come do this. That's the point. It's important if yeah. they see value in it. If their teammate sees value in it, then they'll try it. You know, so. right. If you're not able to train throughout the season, how are you kind of measuring or sustaining this high level performance, right? So obviously you expect these guys to be at their peak as much as they possibly can. We don't know how much that is, but we want to try to keep them as close to 100% as long as we can. So if training isn't the goal, what do we do to optimize recovery and how are you objectifying that, right? Like how are you measuring that? Exactly. So that's a good point. I mean, theoretically, yes, we'd like their strength to be up and to stay up for the whole season. It's very difficult because, for example, if we train, and unfortunately, I'd say 80% of our training sessions are after games. So that's 10, 10, 30 at night. Right. I mean, result disaster. Oh, my God. Yeah. So if you play on a Tuesday, you play on the Thursday, and then you play Saturday, Sunday, when do you train? Sure. Probably after the Tuesday game. You'll have a 20-minute workout. It's not a very long workout. Obviously, you can't. Cortisol nightmare, like you said. But then the following workout would probably be the next Thursday, let's say. But that Thursday, an athlete gets a puck on the ankle. And he can't train. He's got to get a, go to treatment right away. Well, his next training session after the first Tuesday is going to be in three weeks. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem in terms of strength, keeping up the strength. But yeah, so what we do is try to recuperate as quickly as you can. Right. So I try and blunt cortisol ASAP after the game. Like shakes and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Now, obviously, what do you think happens if we lose? You guys are drinking beers. No, no, no not necessarily. <laughs> not necessarily drinking beers, but they're shaking, you know, they're, they're not happy. They right. throw their shake down. Okay, so it's it's another problem. So then they go to dinner. We have a chef right there in our room. So we have a shake. We have dinner right there in our room. But then they're so pissed off. They're not eating. They just go home. So they don't sleep that night. The next day, we have practice the next morning. And we have a workout, for example. 
they're very tired. They sure. can't work out. Not nourished, not recovered. Exactly. Right. So nervous system just blasted. That's what we try to avoid. We try has to avoid has there been any attention paid to the lighting? My brain's going down rabbit holes, but how the, the lighting in the workout room after the game? So I'm, my brain's thinking, okay, 1030 at night, we're going to stimulate the system. But the worst thing I want to do now is get them all jacked up with blue lights. So like that would be something I'd be like, hey guys, we got to fix this. Like I want them in almost like a dim lit room where you can work, and then it almost like stimulates that cortisol response, and then a cold shower, and into bed. Right? It isn't my house, right? <laughs> but no, not in our dressing room. You got to realize too, in our dressing room, that's I don't even know, hundred. That's actually two hundred feet long, almost. Well, the gym is only thirty feet, right? So I can do that in the gym, but. All the lights would have to be right. dimmed down or orange or can red. Some blue blockers. Well, yeah. So <laughs> nobody's gonna wear those. Look, I see your point. Yeah, no, I get but it. Man. I'm, I'm like the raw, the new year trainer here. I'm like, hey, man, everyone has to be perfect, like you were the first year, right? And I'm like, yeah, that's probably not gonna happen. So you're looking at those things that, okay, what are the things that I need to make a must? I need to focus on. What are those things that I need to focus on getting buy-in to? So what are those things for you to optimize? Like, hey, guys, I need to make sure you do this. Is there like one, two, or three things where you're like, hey? This is going to be the biggest needle mover for, and hard maybe to say that for everybody, but in general, what would be those things that you're focusing on? Well, number one is nutrition for me. Number one, number two, nutrition and sleep. Those for me, those are the... So what are are the interventions you're doing to optimize nutrition and sleep? Well, nutrition, I'm the one who... Decides what they're I'm basically the nutritionist, although I'm not a nutritionist, but I'm the one who who is... uh, It's all all vegan, right? (laughs) All vegan. What do they eat? No, man. <laughs> I'm not offending anybody. I'm a joke. But what do they eat? Well, okay. So on a game day, for example, we have four meals at the arena. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, they're yeah. most of the day. So we're at 7 o'clock game. 7 o'clock game, we all, if we're home, we always have a 10.30 skate in the morning. So starting at 8 o'clock, there's breakfast. So we have eggs, bacon, oatmeal, fruit, berries, green smoothies. Then at lunch, we have a chef that makes either a fish, a steak, or a chicken with a pasta station. So either, usually we use cauliflower, cauliflower mash, or rice, and we have soup. So that's essentially, that's what we have for lunch. Then they come back around 4.30, 4.30, and then we have some chicken, we have some quinoa, we have some chicken and rice soup. That'll be it. After the game, like I said, make them a shake. And so these guys aren't at the arena the whole day. They go home. No, no, they go. They yeah. go home. But they, they have to be back by four thirty. They have to be back. I believe it's two hours before the game, per team rule. Right. That's what we do because they have meetings. There are two, three meetings before the game, mm-hmm. so they have to be there for the meetings. And, uh, they all prepare. Obviously, they, they need to warm up. And, uh, they all have their own routine. They all yeah. have their own routine. You know? Interesting. Yeah. And after the game, like I said, we have another set menu that has obviously fast carbs and protein and vegetables. So some guy's not performing really well. And, and, you know, previously he's had a good history. He's just happens to be just a bad couple of weeks or a bad season for him. You're in some way feeling responsible for improving his performance. What's the approach? Is it like go and have a conversation with him? Is it, how do you approach it? Depends on the reason. Depends on the context. Is it physical? Is it psychological? What type of player are we talking about? Are we talking about a high-performing player? Are we talking about a bubble player who's in and out of the lineup? Let's talk about a high-performer. So oftentimes, what do you find is the reason typically, right? What are the typical reasons why everyone knows of slumps in sports? Sure. So typically, it's something psychological. Typically, it's, you know, they're playing games in their mind. But what are those things that typically stand out as yeah, Usually, I'd say, I'd say a lot of it's psychological. It's rarely physical because they're such in good shape in terms of 
we're on the ice every day mm-hmm. almost. So that's rarely the problem. The capacity to repeat maximal efforts is not is usually right. not the problem. And the bad guys have been weeded out by that point anyways. But well yeah, exactly. That's, that's the point. So often it's psychological. Often it's problems at home. Another problem is most of these guys are in their twenties. So a lot of these guys have either a girlfriend, a rupture in that relationship, or a new kid. And that can be a big change. It's a bit of a shift. It's a bit of a shift. Yeah. Exactly. So it's usually a psychological problem, right. but sometimes it's a problem at home. Too. Okay. So they're saying, Mark, I'm having a hard time focusing. I'm having a hard time you know, giving my all because I'm thinking about stuff other than what I should be on. What's the intervention? Well, that's easy. Send them over to my psychologist. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of having a team. Sometimes someone will come at you with a problem and then, well, I'm sorry, that's not my area. So you better go see him or you better go see him or you right. better go see him, you know, or you better go talk to this player who's having the same problem or had the same problem last year. A lot of the times it's a problem with their kids at school. So, well, don't talk to me. I haven't had those problems. I can't help you with this, but you can talk to that player because he had the same problems last year mm-hmm. with his kids at school. Would you feel like it's part of your role to not step on people's toes, meaning the other professionals in the room? So if someone has a psychological problem, you feel like you have perspective on, would you give it or would you tend to just like, hey, you know what? I'm not the psychologist. Go see the psychologist, even though you feel kind of like, hey, I could probably help this guy. Our psychologist doesn't have a full-time position. So he's here 10 days a month, for example. So if he is in town and a player comes to see me, first of all, if the player comes to see me, it may be that that person wants to talk to me. Right. You know, or if he goes to see someone else at the staff, Christian, for example, that may be because he needs to talk to Christian for some reason. Now, it's up to me to say, well, look, is there something I can help you with? Or is this something our psychologist can help you with? You know, it's, it's part of the conversation. Right. You know, but most of the time, I mean, like I said, it's my ninth season. So after eight years, we're pretty close. Some of the players, you know, you build relationships and you get to be pretty close. So if a player comes to talk to you, obviously he trusts you and he has, you know, no one would ever come to you if they don't trust you with an issue. And if they know that the psychologist is in town, but still comes to you, chances are you're the person they want to talk to. Sure. So we spoke originally about you have these newbies, these beginners, these rookies, rookie within the first two, three years. Then you have these kind of guys who are in their prime, who are really thriving, and you have the older guys. How would you approach a training session with them all? Are they all doing the same thing? Are they all getting different amounts of work? Obviously, like individualization of programs is important, but probably pretty challenging in a room of, what, 16 guys you carry on the roster or something? We have 23 guys. We can carry up to 23 healthy players, but we only dress 20 every game. So the answer is typically it's a combination of training age, not age, training age, yep. and ice time, especially ice time. Sure. So I'll give you an example. If I have a uh, 19-year-old, six foot two, 178-pound defenseman who obviously needs to put on a little bit of muscle mass, but he's playing quite a bit, is it the right time to do that in season? No, I don't think so. He'll be slowing down for his game. Well, slow him down, especially fatiguing yeah. too much. However, if he's in and out of the lineup, he's not playing that much, then, and this is what I do all the time, I go see the coach. I say, okay, look, what do you think his playing time is going to be soon? Because I can take advantage of a window here and then up his volume if he's not going to play for the next week or for the next two weeks. Right. So conversations and relationships actually with everybody are important in terms of keeping the ways of communication open are very, very important to know, okay, what am I supposed to do here? 
right? You know, is he playing tomorrow night? We have a lot of back-to-back games, so we'll play on a Saturday and Sunday. Well, on a Saturday, those three players, every game actually, every game, those three players that are dressing are training. But if I have a game tomorrow, and if one or two or all of these guys might be in the lineup, well, that workout, I need to understand what's going to happen. You know, if I know they're not playing, well, perfect. I can give them a good, a harder session that needs a little bit more recovery time. What kind of communication system do you guys have in place? Like, do you have like a platform for every, you know, that you can kind of go and put in subjective, objective tracking of everybody? Like, so how does a coach communicate with the therapist, communicate with yourself? How do you guys all make sure everyone's on the same page? Is it just verbal or is there actually a tracking system? I have a tracking system. The therapists have a tracking system. But they keep that to themselves, and I keep mine to myself. The actual communication is verbal. We're not very far down the road. Sure. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, we're just a few steps away, and we're actually pretty tight. So it's easy. You know, sometimes I'll get a phone call from the head coach. He's in, in his office 20 feet away. Come and see me. All right. So I'll go because he's in a meeting with someone else, and he wants to incorporate me in that meeting. So it's the communication is actually very verbal. But when you said platform, that struck a bell. One of the things I do in season to make sure that we're adequately rested is I do some tracking. So I do especially heart rate, heart rate variability, and training loads. And over the course of a season, I see the ups and downs. And we started camp and training camp. Training camp is very, very tough. So you see the efficiency of the players. Well, if that efficiency goes down in season, I go see the coach and I say, oh, look, fine efficiency. Well, I have loads. I have training loads, mechanical loads, and physiological loads. I have kind of a, a miles per hour system that I use. And if I see that the engine is getting fewer miles per gallon, then I go see the coach and say, okay, look, we're getting tired here. Or, so you're actually measuring like speed with the GPS? like the distance Not, not GPS, not GPS, but heart rate, okay. heart rate and heart rate variability. Okay. So then I go see the coach and I show him the graph and I say, okay, this player is gassed or seems gassed. And obviously it's technology. The technology can be wrong. It can malfunction. So that's where we have a conversation with the player, show him his graph and then say, okay, look, do you need a day off? And sometimes the coach will grant it. Last season, the coach gave the whole team an extra eight days off because of this. You guys were crushing last year. Well, we were, but I think rest is so important, sure. especially on an 82-game schedule. And, and to be able to quantify that with HRV is so important, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that it's finally becoming mainstream, I think it gives more athletes, and I say this often, it gives more athletes an opportunity to be elite because elite people – typically are just the ones who are the most resilient to stress. So young athletes coming up and most coaches don't know what the hell they're doing. They're just beating people into the ground. The ones that are most resilient to that is able to recover enough to progress. And the ones that aren't break down and, and they could be the most talented guys of all, but because their body doesn't have that resiliency to stress, they may not progress. So I think it just opens the playing field a little bit to go, hey man, I'm not genetically blessed or maybe I'm not really good at recovering from stress, but now I can learn to manage that load and actually improve my performance. Exactly. So you get these guys who are maybe the tier B guys who now maybe they can start performing like a tier A guy because someone like you comes in and says, hey, I see you're pushing your boundaries right now. We need to implement something to optimize recovery and then you're going to be able to perform better. That's amazing to me. It's really good. And, and you know what? We had a conversation the other day about that too. Well, I think we were talking about Patrick McEwen. Yeah. And unfortunately, I missed his uh, course here. But when I read his book a couple of years ago, I didn't think much of it. I started using some of it. But then when you hooked me up with Dr. Dance Dickler, mm-hmm. right, and Micro Hamilton, they just started talking about it. And then when Micro was at the house, she was actually coming here, right, for that course. And she started talking about heart rate variability. And I never even... I looked at it, but I didn't even realize it was that important. Yeah. And she started talking about it, talking about it more than I even comprehended. And so it really, really 
made me think more about it. And then when you talked about the breathing last time I was here, and especially to get the body more parasympathetic, that's what I started using with my players after. And I, I really think, I say this again, I say this often, but I think you can get performance-enhancing drug effects from breathing and heart rate variability optimization. Like, recovery is a superpower. And if you can learn to quantify recovery and find the ways that are going to move the needle the most, what's the objective of performance-enhancing drugs? It's to recover so I can get back in and train again. Now, if I can quantify that and go, hey, I know my breathing. If I keep my breathing at six breaths per minute and I'm keeping my heart rate at 40 beats per minute and my brain is sinking in, my body is just in this beautiful state to recover. So you're going to be more parasympathetic. So the audience gets it. Like the autonomic nervous system is about high peaks and low valleys, right? Most people live in this very, very small flux. So like my heart never really gets high and never really gets low. It kind of stays. So it beats like a metronome. You don't want it to be like a metronome, right? You want it to be irregularly. You want it to be like when I take a deep breath in, I want my heart rate to go up because I want, that means my heart's responsive. So from an athlete getting off the bench, that you want them to go take in that oxygen, take in that nitric oxide, boom, go hit it, right? Versus as soon as they come off, it's... Yeah, coming. Yeah, for sure. And now my heart rate goes from 90 or 120 to 40 like that, right? That's a superpower where most of these guys are living in the seventies and eighties, maybe living in the nineties and eighties, but you know, we want them to be able to come off the ice, boom, you're recovering. Now your body's not tapping into those energy reserves, right? Your, your, your body's not like on high alert, like, oh shit, there's a lion over there. I'm on high alert dumping glycogen into my body because my body's stressed. So how do we get them out of that place so quickly? That's, I think the next frontier of performance yeah. and, and yeah. whether you're a bodybuilder, a hockey player or anything, like getting yourself out of sympathetic immediately training that because like like anything it's it's like i have to train my brain and my body to get out of sympathetic or convert get into sympathetic right and that i think is just an underutilized superpower right and that's funny because every home game we try and spike the nervous system around seven hours before the game so we do some heavy lifting yeah but i'm curious to see the effect that the breathing can have on that too well so again that's a patrick McEwen thing and i'll give him all credit on this man so his suggestion is if you're doing an extended breath hold, so you're doing like a challenging breath hold, you're holding your breath as long as you can on the exhale. So if I and hold, objectively, I want to hold, it's called a bolt score. So right. the amount of time that you hold after exhalation is called your bolt score. And until, so, you, until, you, until you have the urge to breathe. So, or the stronger, so the bolt score technically is the first urge to breathe, but you can do a strong breath hold, which is well past that first urge. And you're like, like, okay, now I have to breathe. So if you breathe in after that, your body's accumulated nitric oxide in your nasal cavity. You're breathing in nitric oxide, so your body's going to dilate its blood vessels immediately. So that's a performance benefit, right, from the dilation of blood vessels. But when you're holding your breath, you're getting an accumulation of carbon dioxide, which then forces your body to off-gas oxygen from the hemoglobin. So that's oxygenating the tissues. So if we can do that, your performance will increase. People are thinking about, I need to hyperventilate to get more oxygen in. That's not the goal, right? That's the goal is to get not more oxygen in, but more oxygen to the tissue. So by holding your breath, that's what's going to get you more oxygen to the tissue. And as soon as you taught me that, plus the nitric oxide, I'm seeing a significant increase in my ability to do so subjectively. But like I say an example, if I go and do a squat, you do eight squats, say 90%, say we get pretty close to failure. Like it's not like I'm dying failure, but it's pretty damn close. Put the weight down. And as soon as it's down, I exhale. I don't breathe. I exhale and hold my breath. And as soon as I'm done, I inhale fast. And then I get in there and do the rep. I can do three more reps. And that's not even having breathed between sets. Whereas if you were to go, the next one you're getting in, you're going to struggle to do one. And that to me, like there's something there, right? This hyperoxygenation of the cells. And, you know, when I think of pro athletes, I'm like, okay, how would we do this, right? Well, if you're between sets or sort of between shifts, 
there's got to be something there that's tapping into your body's ability to use more oxygen, produce more fuel from ATP yeah. uh, in that short amount of time. And then those little things for you guys can make the biggest difference. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because it's a new thing now. I believe it started in football, I'm not sure. But to have oxygen on the bench, right? You know, oxygen bottles yeah. on the bench. So, so your body carries 2% of your oxygen dissolved in the plasma. 99% is carried on the hemoglobin. So all they're trying to do there is saturate the plasma, which it's like going in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Well, my question is, wouldn't it be better to have CO2 cartridges? I don't know. I don't know. You'd have to ask Micro. Right. So, but I don't think you want to have that much of a saturation of CO2. I think it's more just about, so if you look at like, if you get a pulse ox, which will tell you like, hey, I'm 99% oxygenated right now, but holding your breath, you just do a strong breath hold, it'll start dropping to 90. And if you're moving, it'll start going down 60. You can get a little 60. That's enough to create a shift in your tissue oxygenation, right? So I don't know if you need to consume it. I could be wrong. But there may be a fast way to do it. Just trying to play devil. Yeah, that no, totally, man. Yeah. The simplest thing to do is they're just doing those breath holds. And, and man, I've seen, again, completely subjective, anecdotally, I, I see a pretty big shift in that immediate result, immediate ability to produce a greater result. So, I mean, something to explore, man. I think the future of athletics is tremendous for people that can start to understand this stuff. And you're the cutting edge, man. So being able to implement it, I want to hear what happens. Like, hey, this is what we saw. And it's kind of subjective, right? Like you have to go, he felt better. What does that mean? Exactly. That's often a question we have, that I have. How do you feel better? And then I think of it. Dude, placebo is everything though, right, man? Like we know that if you guys just get you subjectively feeling better, like maybe there's something to it. I don't know if anybody's doing this, but actually checking with the GPS, checking the average speed on the ice would be an interesting thing to look at too, right? Yeah, there's no companies out there doing that yet. Sure there is. I think there's a company called Intrexon that does that. I'm pretty sure Catapult does it. Is that a wearable or what's a catapult? They're both wearables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both wearables. One of them is a GPS catapult and Intrexon is radio waves. They use radio waves, but it's a question of positioning. So they look at positioning and they, they can see the positioning, they can see the speed. I believe actually they're going to be inserted in all our jerseys this year. So we may have some of that data available. I mean, if you think about it, if you see someone's miles per hour going down over time, like, oh, of course, maybe something to look at. The thing with hockey, the tough thing with hockey is that it's not a 100 meter dash. Sure. Where, but it'll still be a snapshot of the whole game, right? Like, hey, your max speed was this, this game, this game moves, sure. max speed was this, and the whole average median was down. Sure, but then there's the question of what style of game totally. does but New Jersey still an average play to yourself, okay, versus yeah, you got LA. It. So, okay, so this was a slower game to the eye. This was a much slower game than, I don't know, San Jose against Boston, for right. example. You know, so how many power plays were there? So you bring up a great point, but there's more thinking. Right. I also think the NHLPA will shut it down because if you think about it from a player's perspective, like, hey, you slow down this game. Of course. Oh, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Players don't want to hear that, right? Believe me, I get it. With the wearables, I I mean, theoretically, I'm not allowed to have these players wear it. I need consent Uh and it's on an individual basis. You don't want to wear it. You don't wear it. It's that simple. But again, it's about relationships and it's about telling them, look, about letting them know, look, this is what I do with the data. I'm not going to the coach every day and say, look, this guy. No, that's not what I'm doing. I'm looking at it, looking at you, your numbers over time, and I'm looking at, at shifts, at changes. Sometimes there aren't. You know, good. So what happened that day? Your efficiency went down that day. What happened? I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep at all. Okay. So they know it's a conversation. It's a conversation starter. And then with that conversation, you apply something. You apply a cure. You try and right. cure something. So whatever it is. So you said you're doing some measuring, some tracking. What are you tracking? I'm curious, like at your level, what are the most important metrics for you right now? So like I said, I use a system called Zephyr. 
and that Zephyr is heart rate based. Oh, yes, you're doing um, heart rate. So what does an average athlete have on your team for their heart rate and respiration rate? Like uh, these elite you athletes? Mean at rest? Sure, yeah. Oh, I have some 39s. And I'd say the average is about 62 resting. Uh, and I always wonder, man, like the subjectivity of it is, is some people say, well, 60 is kind of average. But then you have these guys who are 39 and, and maybe you have people who are in the 70s. And how much of a difference it actually will make if that's any way an indicator of cardiovascular health, or if we should just be looking at respiration. You look at respiration rate at all? We do look at respiration rate, yes. well, And what does that look like on average? You know what? I look at it at rest, but I don't look at it on the bench necessarily. We can sure. only do that in practice. I can't track it during games. What so, do you use to track it? The Zephyr? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's a so chest strap? It's just chest strap. Yeah. Yeah, either a chest strap or a very tight tank top. So, but I can't I get track during games. So I can only track essentially 40 times a year because we practice. We have 82 games. We have roughly 40 practices. That's why I track them. Wow. Let's shift to the offseason because that's kind of when, one, you're not actually – tell me what the situation is in the offseason. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So are you training these guys in the offseason? Are you writing their programs? What's the, the dynamic look like? So the summertime, the, I say summertime, it's offseason. So on our team, no one is from Tampa. Right. So everybody goes where they're from or close to where they're from except for a couple of guys, but it's only one or two guys that stay here in Tampa and they, they do their own thing. They're on the ice every day. I mean, they're on the ice almost every day. At the arena or where do they go? Usually at their practice facility, but everybody else goes wherever they're from. Right. So whether it be Russia, whether it be Sweden, wherever, doesn't matter, Canada, US, Switzerland. And over there, most of them, 90% of them have their own strength coach. So, I go back to Montreal. I'm from Montreal. I have my own gym in Montreal. So that's where I do my thing. But so this summer, for example, 12 of our guys came to Montreal to spend either two to three weeks or the whole summer. So guys from all over, like Denver, from Calgary, from Toronto, and we have a few guys from Montreal also. So I work with those guys in Montreal. How I work is instead of calling the player in Switzerland or in Finland or wherever you're from, I have a list of all strength coaches. That's great. I was thinking that. Yeah. So I call the strength coach because I can talk to the player all day, but at the end of the day, right. he doesn't change his own program. Right. Obviously, he has to be on board with any changes we make, right. any changes his strength coach makes. But at the end of the day, his strength coach makes the call. So I call the strength coach and I say, okay, well, how's it going with player X? Well, it's going well. Okay. What are you doing? Well, this is what I see from last year's testing. And this is where he was the year prior to last year. So I see this moving in this direction. Do you agree or not? Yes, no, whatever. We have a conversation. And this is where I say, well, I'd like to see him at certain levels. Maybe if he's 162 pounds, he could handle another 10 if he's six foot tall or whatever the situation may be. So that's the communication I have. I, to me, that's been the most successful communication in my eight summers. Anyway, that's, right. that's how I do it. And that's They're the ones who implement the actual changes. Right. So in hockey, there seems to be a common subset of injuries like the so you guys are always turning groins or straining groins so it's you know high ankle sprain kind of stuff like that and contact injuries obviously like shoulders separated and stuff is there anything that you implement into training specific to the pelvis because we talked about the hip and pelvis that is useful to help prevent these injuries well that's funny you mentioned that like i said i started in 96 and in the late 90s and early 2000s there was an abundance of so-called lower ab tears, so tears in the pelvis area and lower abdominal area. None of my players have ever had that, but I was still scared that it may happen. So I concentrated on that area with the groin and the lower abs, should we call it that way. 
And I came up with just my own way of doing things, my own thought, my own progression, my own thought process, exactly, which I'm putting down in the course, actually, because I really think it's pretty good. So I use my own progression. I give it the strength coaches that we were talking about earlier. So walk me through it. Like, what is an assessment? Is it progression? Love to hear if you don't mind. It's just progression. I don't mind talking about it. It's just tough to talk about because we have to show you. It's just a way of contracting the, moving the pelvis, really. And it's a progression for the growing. So what would be reasons why people would have these lower abdomen tears? Was it an imbalance? Was it weakness? Was it all the above? Well, it's probably all the above, but I personally think at the base, a weakness. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about it, and I'm talking, I'm going back 20 years. How were people training abs when they were doing crutches or ab roller or whatever it was at the time, but Mm -hmm. a lot of upper movement, upper movement. So I just started doing a lot of lower movement without incorporating the hip flexors. Exactly. You know, weighted, unweighted, uh, with different levers. So it's just a, a way of, I know it sounds a little abstract, but <laughs> I'm sure it's my own little process, just like you have your own little process for making a program, for example, sure. or periodization. So it's just my own little theory, I guess. Yeah. Is it a lot of single leg stuff? Like what tends to be the core? Is there like a, a core, a couple things? It starts with single leg stuff, yeah. definitely. But then I incorporate manual, uh, manual resistance, yeah. and then I incorporate I'll put a dumbbell between your feet and have your pelvis move a certain way. And then I'll put some bands on you. Do you know Dick Hartzell? Jump stretch? Don't know. Jump stretch. He, he's the one who popularized or came up with, I'm not sure, the training bands, those big rubber bands, mm-hmm. the jump stretch. And I uh, spent a little bit of time with him and he showed me a couple of exercises that were phenomenal for us. I'll have to show you. Really, really good. And he actually had 50 kids come in at once, kind of like aerobics classes, mm-hmm. but for abs and squats. And he would do that in his gym. And he was from uh, Youngstown, Ohio. And I spent some time, but he's really, really, I don't know where he is anymore. That was like 15, 15 years ago. But uh, he showed me a few things that were phenomenal, which I still use today. A lot of our guys use the bands actually for their public stuff. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. Talk about what you see as far as like, I know growing up, you're a fan of hockey and you walk in this dressing room and what would someone see as far as a dynamic between these subcategories of players, right? So you have your veterans, you have your, you know, middle categories and you have your rookies is there kind of a fixed dynamic that exists in the dressing room <laughs> yeah that's funny there can be i mean i've only been here in tampa bay but you know every team is different sure so sometimes you have the old vet who's like grandpa it's like a deck of cards you know he's the king of hearts and then you have the newbie who's the two of spades right you know what i mean so and they're all everybody's usually pretty tight with each other and they all you know, it's a locker room. They all kid around. They all bust each other's chops. It's a fun dynamics. And, but what I like about it is that we have that uncle or a few uncles actually who, like I said, we don't train very often. But when we do, you better be there, you know. And I I never have to go get a player. You know, we have that uncle who says, oh, where's this guy, this guy? I don't know. I haven't seen him yet. Who's that for you? I'm Victor sure. Edmund. Victor Edmund and Braden Coburn. Yeah, Those I can see two. Braden. Uh, Victor, isn't he? How old is he? About 30? Victor? Uh, yeah, so he's 29, maybe. But he's, he's kind of a veteran. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's, I believe he's 29. I think he's an 89. Yeah, that's that's kind of funny to hear, right? Like 29. a 29-year-old's the veteran, but that's hockey now, right? I know. Yeah. When I came here in 2011, I had a 40-year-old, and I was 39. Right. So Is that St. Louis? No, that was Wayne Wilson. St. Louis at yeah. the time was 36. But now, I think Braden's our older player, and I think he's 32, 33. Maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. The playing window 
has really, really narrowed in the sense that I remember back in the day when I was watching hockey in the 90s, 80s and 90s, the playing window was, well, let's say 18 to 42. Right. And when I came in, in the league in, in 2011, it was like 19 to, well, we had a 42-year-old. That was odd. That wasn't normal. Like, it wasn't very often. But let's say 19 to 36. And now I'd say it's 19 to 33. You know, that's the playing window. Obviously, right. there are outliers in that. But, sure. Uh, so that has to do with the style of hockey that's been played, right? Like when you and I grew up, it was slow, it was huge defenseman, like these monster defensemen. Yeah. If you weren't over six foot four, you're not a defenseman in the league, right? If you weren't over 220 pounds, you're not a defenseman in the league. It's a completely different game. Do you have any perspective on that shift that happened? And will that continue in your eyes? Or like many things in life, there tends to be seasons, there tends to be an ebb and flow, right? Yeah. So will it come back to the point where the guys are to get bigger and bigger and bigger? Because well, are the teams looking to add that? Or is it just like they enjoy the speed game? Well, no, I think the speed's there to stay. I think the 04, 05, I believe the 0405 lockout was the instigator for that. After that, they changed the rules. Whereas if you got your stick a little higher than the knee, yeah. then that was a hooking belt. You know, even if if you didn't hook, right. so that really changed the game in terms of speed. And it's funny because when I came in in 2011, the average player was about six foot one, two oh five, and now the average player is about six one, two hundred. And back in the 80s, like early 80s, it was six foot, I believe, and 181, 180, 183 pounds, something like that. So the average player gained 20 some pounds and now lost mm -hmm. about five pounds. But the funny thing is you get these small defensemen now, very small defensemen, 5'10", 5'11", 180, 185 pounds were very, very quick. So the small are getting small, like Johnny Goudreau is a smaller guy, but the big are getting bigger, it seems. Mm -hmm. You know, there are bigger guys. There are machines out there. Right. And, oh, yeah, well, Dustin Bufflin. Yeah. You know, so. But having said that, it used to be that the bigger defensemen were kind of slow right but now the big defensemen are keep very up. fast like victor edmund is fast jesus the brain, man. i would watch him skate i watch his feet move him this guy's great yeah oh, yeah great skater oh yeah, yeah oh yeah but it's funny we talked about this the other day too in the off season how do you train a guy we were talking about how to train player x versus player y and i think i talked about the pie chart so every player is 100 so we'll take whatever player x who is 85 percent physical maybe 5% skill and 10% cognitive. Whereas player B is 85% cognitive and the rest is physical. So for that player, for player B, raising the vertical jump from 28 to 33, sure, could benefit him. But will you ever see it? Even if he does, will you ever see it in his game? Right. Probably not. Whereas player A or player X, sorry, <laughs> If you increase his vertical from 33 to 35, you'll probably see it in this game because he's so physical. So every player has got that performance pie chart where, okay, how can I help him? Is he a cerebral player or is he a physical player? What do I need to give him? How does he need to train? Does he need to train speed or does he need to bulk up? You know, like a little skilled forward. Do you need to bulk him up in the shoulders right. and the chest? Chances are no, because right. he's going to lose. Other than getting him close, a separated clavicle. Like I just want to make sure he's not going to break when somebody hits him in the boards. Exactly. But. So for a player like that, the strength ratios and especially the rotator cuff are much more important than, for example, a Braden Coburn, mm -hmm. who's a big, strong animal yeah. and he hits a lot. So his upper body strength is important. So there's always that interpretation of, okay, wait a minute. It's not cookie cutter for everybody. Right. It's what do I do in certain cases and how can I benefit this player? How can I train him so that his 100% is a little bit 
better in his game, in his own game, because hockey is an ongoing sport where you don't change. It's not set plays like in football. So that's a football is very, very different animal. Yes. So dynamic. Exactly. Exactly. So 82 game schedules, you guys are flying all over the country and recovery is your top focus. You leave after the game to fly directly. If you have a game in the next city, you'll leave immediately after the game, probably arrive at some obscure hour. Is you guys sleeping on the plane? Are you getting a hotel and giving the day off the next day? Like I'm really trying to understand sleep schedules and like circadian rhythms and how that stuff's impacting these athletes in probably a negative way. And then looking for strategies within that, like, Hey, we could poke that hole there and like improve that a little bit. So what does it look like when you're traveling so much? What are you guys doing to fix sleep? Oh, welcome to my nightmare. That's the hardest thing to do because we will rarely leave after a game at home. We'll typically wait until the next day because first of all, sleep in your own bed. You sleep in your own bed. You're there. See your family. Because we are not in Columbus or it's the Northeast where there's, I don't even know how many teams up there. There are a lot of teams within an hour flight, not even. So I don't even call that a flight. You know, we're in Tampa. So sure, if we go to, to Florida, basically, you know, it's a 45 minute flight. That's fine. Everywhere else is a two-hour flight, Mm -hmm. minimum, if it's not three. So we'll sleep in our own bed. But there's a rule that we can't fly the day of the game. So if we play on a Wednesday, yeah, well, before the game. So if we play on a Wednesday in Washington, for example, we are not allowed to fly that Wednesday. We We need to fly that Tuesday. So let's say we play Monday at home, for example. We'll play the Monday. We'll practice the Tuesday morning probably and then leave after the practice on Tuesday go to Washington and then play in Washington. But should we play that Thursday, the very next day, you have to fly that night. we have to fly that night after the Washington game. Then that's where if it's a close flight, it's not necessarily a problem. But if it's a longer flight, so for example, if we cross the border, that happens quite often. I believe we play Minnesota and then the next night we play in Winnipeg yeah. this year. So it's a fairly long flight and we have a border to cross. That's a shift. So we'll go we'll fly to Minnesota. The day before, we'll play that game in Minnesota, and that very night, we'll leave for Winnipeg. So we'll get to the hotel pretty late. So the next day, there's no meetings in the morning. We let the guy sleep in the morning. But yeah, is it a challenge? For sure. And the cortisol is so high after the game in Minnesota. You're in the air. If it's a two-hour flight, it's very tough to sleep. You know, So guys, so guys play cards sure. sometimes, and cortisol stays high. And then they get to bed, mm-hmm. and most of the time, they have a hard time falling asleep. We're going to get these guys some blue blockers and some juve lights, man. The manipulation of light seems yeah. like it's probably a good opportunity that exists there, right? Yeah. Especially waking up at obscure hours when you've mm-hmm. been sleeping in late, like getting yourself some blasting sunshine yeah. or a bit blasting infrared light. I agree. That's where starting with one player. You start with one player, and then everybody sees him on the plane, obviously. Let's get Coburn in oh, here. What do you think? Exactly. He'll be early enough. Okay. <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, okay. Yeah. I want some of that. Especially when he starts performing better, right? When he's talking that's, about... And that's the whole know, point. Yeah. And that's the whole point. But it's so subjective in the sense that he starts performing better. He's already a 32, 33-year-old machine. What is performing better for him? He's already very high. It's subjective, but if he says that he's feeling better... If he, exactly. If and that feels like he's yeah, feeling better. And that's the whole point. Yeah. yeah. That's the whole point. Very, very cool, man. How did Lightning do this year? They're going to crush it. You guys made some improvements over last year, right? You lost a couple guys, gained well, a couple guys? That's always hard to say. You know, it's not my first time thinking that. But until you see the games, until you see the team play as a team, we think so. Yeah, we think so. So you lost two key defensemen? We lost Dan Girardi and Anton Strawman. And uh, Where did Girardi go? Girardi is not playing this year as of right now. Okay. 
He doesn't have a contract right now. We lost Ryan Callahan up front. Where'd he go? He retired. Actually, he got traded to Ottawa, but he's decided uh, not to play. Right, exactly. Hey, that's it. Strawman's a big loss, right? You said he just went to Florida. Strawman's a big loss, big loss, yeah. yeah. But you can't blame him for the contract he signed. Sure, you know he was a UFA, he was an unrestricted free agent. But we added uh, Luke Shen and we added Kevin Shattenkirk. Shattenkirk was with the Rangers. Rangers and Luke Shen. Luke Shen last year was with LA. He's Canadian, right? Yeah, he's from uh, Regina. Yeah, I believe defenseman. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good guys. Sounds excited. So you guys are into preseason right now? Or are you not preseason, but you're into we start training camp, camp tomorrow morning? Oh, wow. So we're getting the, the little preseason insights. That's why I so said this is it. This is my last day that very, I, can, very I cool. can talk to you. Man, well, unfortunately. I really appreciate you getting in here to help, and I look forward to seeing what these guys do, man. I feel like I've got more of a connection to the team because I know you're back there always thinking through making these guys better, man. So it's truly an honor, and you've got a fan of me, so send the boys my love and respect. <laughs> I will. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Hey everybody, I hope you enjoyed that show with Mark Lambert. You guys know my fascination around not just the X's and O's that happen in the gym, right? So many coaches and trainers are myopically focused on like, hey, this is what you got to do. Here's the sets and the reps and the volume and the frequency and the density and all these things. And those are very, very important. But what if we could hack getting back in the gym faster? What if we could hack our recovery? What if we could hack our nervous system's ability to feel less exerted when we train, wouldn't that be the ultimate means of ultimately improving our performance long-term without having to lean toward performance-enhancing substances? And that's really the idea. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mark as we dove a little bit into that world. And it wasn't particularly a deep dive, but it's a really good sticking your toe in, if you will. For those of you that are interested in that world, there's a ton of podcasts on the Muscle Intelligence Network around, hey, here's what you're going to have to do. And here's all these things integrate. And there's a podcast on breathing from Patrick McEwen that you should check out. There's a breathing, there's a podcast on heart rate variability from Mike Hamilton that you should absolutely check out. There's one from Joel Jamison that you should check out. These things are absolutely amazing resources for you that are going to help you thrive. And if you don't understand the benefit of these things yet, go listen to those podcasts because it's game changer. It's why I wake up every day so excited to be a human being and so excited for our future because science is just blooming. It's the greatest time to be alive as a human. And I'm so grateful that you guys have joined me today. I'm so grateful you've given me your time and your ear and your attention and all the amazing feedback and reviews we get on social media, on iTunes, on Twitter. Guys, I'm so grateful for it. Thank you. Keep it coming, please. Send us your questions. Ashley and I are doing a Q&A every week now. We would love to hear from you. This podcast has been brought to you by Four Sigmatic. If you haven't already checked it out, they're hooking you guys up. Take advantage of the discount while you can, guys. 15% off. Use the code MUSCLE at foursigmatic.com. F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com. Foursigmatic.com. Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Ben Pekulski. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest 
interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.